Welcome to Delegate, where we bring you the latest in DAO governance news, protocol deep dives, and interviews with some of the industry's most interesting professionals. I'm Cameron O'Donnell, a DAO governance strategist. And I'm Lawrence Smith, a DeFi and DAO token builder. Let's jump in. We have a great show today talking about DAOs and taxes. We're joined by a special guest, Tony Toots, a partner at KPMG and national digital asset tax leader. Tony, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Happy to be here. I think what makes sense is if we start on a little bit about you and how you got into crypto. Sure. You know, I'm a tax lawyer by background, and I've always done financial services. So and I have a big background in financial product taxation. So, you know, back in the TradFi world, we're talking about, you know, stocks, bonds, commodities, foreign currencies, but also like structured products around that and investment funds and things of that nature. And so that kind of background just kind of sucked me in a long time ago when crypto was first coming to market because, you know, People who invested into it needed to know how it was taxed. And so since it looks a lot like it, on first glance, it looks a lot like a financial instrument. They gave it to the financial instrument guy, and that's how it it all got started. It sounds like they airdropped it to you then. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of how it happened. And, you know, I will will admit, though, that was way back in maybe 2014 or so, never took up more than 5% of my day on a good day until about 2017, 2018 started to appear more and more often. And it quickly hockey sticked to a situation where by 2020, I'm just like consuming my entire day. What is crypto if it's not consuming your entire day? So how about at KPMG? Can you speak a little bit about the work that you're doing there? And then we'll move on to a little overview about digital asset taxation. Yeah, sure. So the stuff we're doing at KPMG in this space really spans the entire ecosystem. So in any given day, you might be working with a project developer. You might be working with some minor, some of the big exchanges, the huge crypto exchanges that are out there. Those are our clients. And then, of course, there's the big investment funds and investment managers. And those might be hedge funds. They might be venture funds. But you also, believe it or not, you see like the traditional kind of stock and bond hedge fund folks. Also, we're, you know, we get their position list at the end of the year filled with crypto. And so we're working with them as well. Also, people kind of tangential to that world too, like the, the staking validators, custodians, administrators that deal with that, would deal with the digital assets. And, you know, I think there, there's another, at least for me, because I come from a, an asset management background, there's a, another world that's kind of outside of my normal fairway, which is just the regular Fortune 500 companies, you know, that are putting digital assets to work in their their business model. So not really investing in crypto, but really you know, dropping NFTs to their customers, you're forming an exchange, doing, you know, or, or, or marketplace, you know, so things like that, those have become quite active. It's definitely exciting to hear about all the work that you're doing within the space. And so how about an overview on digital asset taxation? Yeah. So we have the 2014 notice that is Almost unhelpful in the sense that all it says is that cryptocurrency, they use this word virtual currency, but they just say cryptocurrency ought to be treated as property. Now, they put that out because people use the term cryptocurrency. The general public kind of took from that. The word currency is in there. I will treat it as currency for tax purposes. 
And so they, they really felt that they needed to just put a stop to that because that was not what it should be treated as substantively. So yeah. most of that entire notice is just don't treat this as currency. Treat this as regular property. And the reason I say it's unhelpful is because just telling me it's property without any more does almost nothing. Right. It's because you didn't tell me, should I treat it as a stock security? Should I treat it as a commodity? Should I treat it just like a used truck? So because they didn't say anything, believe it or not, it defaults into that used truck category. And so all I know is that it's this piece of property that I own. And if I give it to somebody else in exchange for something, anything, money, other property, it's taxable. Okay? And I might have a gain or loss and it could be capital. And if I'm a dealer in it, it could be ordinary. That's really all it told me. It's like most unhelpful, but at least it did solve this mystery about should be treated as a currency or not. Um, they also went way out of their way in that notice, by the way, to dispel whatever rumors might have been in the market that, well, you know, if I do work and you pay me in crypto rather than cash, I'm not taxable. I don't know who actually thought that was the rule <laughs> anytime, but yeah, they did say, you know, in no uncertain terms. If you are paid in crypto or you get crypto or it shows up in your wallet somehow without you even doing whatever, taxable, taxable, taxable. So, and anytime, you know, if you go to Starbucks and you buy a cup of coffee for Bitcoin, taxable. Yeah. So it, they, they did get to that, but so that not so helpful. And then it went silent for years. We never heard from the IRS again until 2019. That's a long time. And by the way, if you were active in this industry at that time, you will know between 2014 and 2019, a lot happened. And so that was a long time to go without anything. And then what ended up happening then was really, it was the Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash fork. And they felt, oh, we really have to address this. They were a little late addressing it, but whatever, at least they got there. And really all they, they said was, you know, it, it, that was helpful actually, because there they delineated, hey, soft fork. You don't get a new token, just changing the protocol, not taxable. Hard fork, you do get a new token, taxable. And so then they went on to address airdrops and other things like that. And so we did get some helpful stuff. And at that same time, the IRS gave out a series of FAQs, which they continue to amend today now and again. And those FAQs went through some more very kind of detailed stuff. Some of the more helpful things that were in there, though, was the whole tax lot issue, right? Because if I, if I bought Bitcoin, for example, over five years at different times at different prices, when, then when I sell one lot, which lot did I sell, right? And you would say, if you're used to trading stock and securities, you'd be like, that's, that's easy. You just pick the one you want. The problem is that rule, like a lot of the rules in the IRS in the tax code, they use the term stock and securities. And if the statute says stock and securities, we can't use it. It just falls out of the code on us. And so that was the problem with that rule about pick your lot. It says you can only use it for stock or securities. So the IRS, again, very tax favorable, very friendly rule said, go ahead. I know it's not a stock or security, but go ahead, use the rule. And so that, that was really super helpful. Although when, if you go back and read the rule about how you'd have to do it, it's a little strict <laughs> and it's a, and people don't really use it that way. And so we're still left, believe it or not, today, we still have this issue about if I have five different wallets, some are, some are custody wallets, some are non-custody wallets, and I sell something in my custody wallet. Can I say that for tax purposes, I sold something in my non you know, my personal wallet, my cold wallet? I think you can, but 
you know, reasonable, reasonable minds can differ. So it's, it's kind of interesting in that regard. But yeah, so I think that the, the, the guidance that came out in 2019, that was helpful, but it still left so many things. Like, what is the character of income? What's the timing? What's the source? People always ask me, staking income's a big one. So if a U.S. person earning staking income, let's say they delegated to pick your favorite validator, uh, is that U.S. source income or foreign source income? I have no idea. Nobody does. And so, and if I'm running my own node, um, is it New York source income? Is it California source income? Is it non-US source income? I don't know. You know, does it matter where the server is? Me? I don't know. So, you know, there's so many unanswered questions, but these things really matter. Maybe people don't actually realize this if you're not a tax lawyer, but when you put something on your tax return and you file it that way, you just took a tax position. You might not have thought a lot about it, but you decided for yourself, this is California source income or it's not. This is, you know, taxable on receipt, taxable on sale, what have you. So there's a lot that's going into that every time you file one of those returns. But in the uh, regulatory void that we find ourselves, you will often find human behavior is to create rules that are taxpayer friendly. That's the way human works. <laughs> you said there about the NFTs and, and sort of the tax implications of NFTs for organizations. I've not heard about much on the NFT minting and creating front. How does that tie in with these organizations and what sort of things they need to look into? Yeah. So, you know, you have the normal kind of mainstream NFT exchanges that you know about, but there's also, believe it or not, some Fortune 100 companies that are putting together marketplaces, not so much for the broad scale NFTs, but the NFTs that they and their affiliated companies are creating just to make some sort of liquidity for them and be able to move them around. And so that's where you really get into some wild tax issues because one, if if anybody says they know how to tax an NFT, they're lying to you because what is an NFT? It can be anything. It could be my school records. It could be, you know, it could be a ticket to a concert or it, or it could be, you know, this this entry ticket into this community where I will get all kinds of opportunities, some digital, some in real life, and you know, it has real value and it does things for me. So unless you know what it is, you can't know what it, whether it's taxed or how it's taxed. What we spend a lot of time on is looking under the hood saying, hey, what does this do? What is this supposed to give the person? How do you get it? And that way we can say, here's how it's taxed. And one of the interesting things about NFTs, well, two really interesting things about NFTs. One is unlike normal cryptocurrencies, these, because a lot of them are real things like a concert ticket, they have sales tax issues. So sales tax in this country, that in another country, that's a real thing. And, and you know, states, locals, or localities are really opening their eyes to that. And so we have to deal with that in addition to the normal federal stuff. Also really interesting as NFTs is the embedded contracts. Right? There's embedded licenses and royalties in there a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's a lot of other stuff in there too. You know, I recently saw an NFT for the sale of condo units in Florida. And so embedded in the NFT was the deed, the, the property management contract. The, there was just there was like five different things embedded into it. And so, you know, some of these things should be bifurcated and taxed separately. Some of them should be, you know, treated as one unit. So you don't really know. Clearly, if you know, if I sell you some picture of this ape and you know you you can transfer it and but embedded in there is a license and a royalty agreement clearly i i I as a tax person should pop out the license agreement and the royalty and treat that for what it is right and tax that and then if you sell the picture of the ape that's totally separate 
you know, really a lot of interesting things in the NFT side that that keep us going at night. And if a lot of the companies, believe it or not, that are using them are, you know, these are mainstream companies, Nike, Disney, you know, yeah. InBev. So, you know, everything you buy now, like you, you get the opportunity to get an NFT these days. So it's interesting. Really great points there. And so you are super active in the space. We've watched some of your many online and in-person discussions on digital asset tax Something that stuck out to us was when you describe interacting with DeFi protocols as a coat check. I think it's super relatable and a great way to explain things. Would love for you to tell everyone a little bit about that. Yeah, so even away from NFTs and regular crypto, right? And De- DeFi is interesting because every <laughs> the thing that keeps me up at night is every DeFi protocol is a snowflake, right? They're not no no two are the same, so you have to go and really read the white paper and look at what's going on to figure out how things are taxed. But they generally fall DeFi generally falls into two camps from a tax perspective. One is like you were saying, the coat check, right? So it could have a compound or an Ave or something like that, where I transfer in XYZ crypto, I'm going to get DeFi rewards. I get paid out of there for sure, and I'll take those into income and pick them up as income. But the only thing I'm ever going to get out of that protocol is the XYZ crypto that I put in. I'm going to get it back. So what we say from a, in a U.S. tax parlance, we would say, that's just a code check, right? I put my XYZ in. When I, when I say I want it back, you're going to give me the XYZ back. So I'm not taxable on that. But if we go to some sort of liquidity pool, for example, it looks like it's almost the same. It feels a little bit the same, except for the fact that now I'm putting in XYZ and ABC crypto in a pair in some ratio they told me to put it in that day. And what I'm going to get out, well, I might get ABC and XYZ in a different ratio, but I might get all ABC or all XYZ. I'm going to get something different than what I put in. And so believe it or not, that distinction causes a real tax difference. And so that transfer in is taxable. Transfer coming back out is taxable. So Devil's in the details in both in NFTs and in crypto. You've really got to look under the hood and see what we're doing in order to get to the right tax answer. And by the way, the right tax answer, that's a misnomer because I don't really have rules. I'm assimilating to other things that are in the market. And so I'm trying to use the rules that exist to kind of shoehorn into this world. It's hard. That's a really interesting point that you flagged there. Is is that sort of the like the primary thing you have to go off and just seeing who like the SEC have come after or, or whichever agency have come after? Is there anything else that you would normally use as like a reference for these things and understanding the tax implications? So, I mean, we do have some rules, but really those address very, very small specific areas. And so the vast majority of the tax world is unknown. We're just trying to look to other areas of the law that are known and say, well, it looks like that. It seems like that. Maybe we should treat it that way. And that's happening all around the world, by the way. It's not just the US, the UK, the EU, Asia, all having the same issues. You're seeing a lot of the regulators come out with you know, on the fly. People hate hate it. They, they say that a lot of the regulators are uh, regulating by enforcement rather than giving us rules. But the truth is they're playing catch up, right? They're just scrambling and dealing with what they're reacting to what they're getting thrown at them. That's why you're getting this kind of haphazard response from all of these different agencies. And so one thing is clear, though, I think all around the world, you see like in this country, you see the IRS, the CFTC, the SEC, they're all 
coming after this space like it is traditional world stuff. And they're saying you can call, you can have fancy names for things. You can call it a DAO. You can call it a cryptocurrency, but we're still going to shoehorn this into you are an entity. You are a security. You are a commodity. That's the way the world works, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it. And so we have cubby holes for how we treat things. And, you know, every country has that. So these items that are coming out of this ecosystem, you know, even though it's decentralized and we will talk about that in a little bit, they are going into a cubby hole. So, you know, the best we can do is try to, you know, put put things, self-help things around these items so that yeah. they go into the cubby hole we want them to go into and not something <clears throat> we don't want them to go into. I mean, spot on. And so when it, when it comes to different regulatory bodies, where does the IRS fit in, in your opinion? So we see a lot about the SEC. We see a lot about the CFTC, some other regulatory bodies. But where does the IRS play their part? Yeah, so that's a great question, Cameron, because the IRS sits under the Treasury Department. Right? The Treasury Secretary, well, she is fantastic at what she does. Don't get me wrong. It's not her job. It's not Treasury's job to be like the the market leader in putting these things in, in their space. And so yeah. I think the one of the primary reasons, I mean, there's various reasons, staff yeah. shortage is not, not the least of which, but the Treasury Department probably is not leading the way because that's not their job. And so I think one of the reasons we're not getting a lot of guidance out of the IRS is because Treasury is waiting to see what the SEC and the CFTC do or Congress does and says, you know, once they figure that out, because if the SEC was to come out tomorrow and say, this is a security, whatever that is, it's some cryptocurrency, this is a security, then immediately, you know, Treasury would latch on to that and say, all right, well, if it's a security, here's our rules and here's how we're going to tax it. But we haven't had that yet. Now, what's interesting, as you might have noticed, uh, the recent SEC action against those Coinbase employees for insider trading, they actually, for whatever reason, they state pulled nine cryptocurrencies out of the out of the pool and said these nine are securities by the way i don't know if you took a look at it but the nine are very different from each other like they're not like some there's nothing you can say that oh well all of these nine have this in common and so it's very curious to me how they picked those nine and why only nine what happened to the other ones why weren't those securities so it's just very, kind of comical in, in that respect i know it's very it's very important to those people who are charged in the case and it's a, obviously a a meaningful issue for the industry as a whole, but how they derived to those nine, I don't know. But should it become law that those nine are securities, believe it or not, the IRS isn't bound by that, right? The SEC can call something a security and the IRS might not. But if the IRS was to go along and say, well, okay, I think it's a security too, then they actually don't even have to do anything. We have rules. We know how they treat securities. And so that would fall into that bucket. So It'll be interesting to see what happens there and whether the IRS wants to go along with that or, or make up their own rules. One of the things I, I thought was really interesting about that list of, of tokens that got banned there as well was even like Rari's governance token featured on that list. Because in my eyes and, and the conversations I have, governance tokens tend to be like the safest or minimal utility for a token that you have. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. If you, if you remember back in the summer of 2017, so I'm going way back on you, you know, the SEC issued a report on DAOs that year, that summer. And that was about really, there was a DAO called the DAO. And they focused on that one. And in, in no uncertain terms, they were very clear, hey, that's a security. And they outlined why it was a security. Here's the features that make it a security. 
you know, as much as people like to harp on Gary Gensler and the SEC, I think they have been pretty steady in their treatment, pretty steady in their in their comments and in their treatment. Like they believe these things are securities and full stop. You know, so, you know, when people ask the SEC for guidance, I think Gary sometimes, Chairman Gensler, sometimes, you know, gets defensive and says, I don't know what you're asking me for. We have guidance and I told you it's a security. So treat it as a security. So he, it drives him a little crazy. I know, but DAOs, you know, governance tokens, we can talk about those more, but even the, the issue with governance tokens, right? Well, first of all, they're not all the same, right? Certain DAOs are different than others. And so you can clearly have a DAO like the DAO where maybe if you owned a governance token, you would also get some sort of profit participation out of the token at some point in some manner, right? Which all of, all of a sudden would throw you into the, to the security column, right? But that's not true of all of them. You know, some of them you're never going to make any money out of. That's not what it's for. It's just just for voting on things. But even when it's just, you know, the, the, the kind of prototypical, if I can use that word, prototypical DAO, where it, it's supporting some sort of DeFi protocol or multiple DeFi protocols, perhaps. But, you know, in that sort of construct, I often question, yeah, I have a governance token. It can never make any money. All it does is allow me to vote on certain ways that the protocol is formed, things that we do, what's done with the treasury, things of that nature. Can I separate the DAO from the protocol? I mean, it only exists to serve the protocol. Presumably, if I'm in the governance token, I'm probably in the protocol, right? And so that's my vested interest there. And so can I really separate them? Maybe all I have, maybe all I've done is separate the voting from the economics, but it's all one thing. So I have voting shares and non-voting shares, right? So one gets the economics, one gets the vote. I can clearly see how um, the IRS might take that view, in which case the taxation would, you know, spin on a dime and we'd come out the, the other way. Really great timing because these are active conversations that we're having internally as well, right? Looking at the economic interest versus that political interest or your voting interest and splitting those from a uh, mechanism point of view and what's the outcome. Yeah, and right on to that point, Ray, we just saw a week or two ago, the CFTC charged and settled, by the way, same day, charged and settled a case against a DeFi platform, its owners, but it got to the owners through the DAO, right? And so what it did was it said, hey, you know, there was this DeFi platform called B0X, still exists, by the way, still operating, but they went to, they said B0X is, they're operating an unregistered uh, commodities trading platform, Right. So they should have been a futures commission merchant. They should have registered that way. They didn't. And so they said, well, we have to fine you and you know, give you a cease and desist order and all that kind of great stuff because you're operating a non-registered exchange, commodity exchange. That was fair enough. But of course, normally when that happens, you also find the people who run it. The two guys who they said were the people who were responsible, they had long since transferred control to a DAO. And so, you know, rightfully so, the individual said, you can't charge me, I'm in charge of this. But that was not the answer the CFTC was looking for. And so they went to the, the Uki DAO, in which the, the two owners were, were members of. And so they went that route. And, they, and so just like we were saying before, from the IRS perspective, is it possible to separate 
the protocol from the DAO? Aren't they really one thing? And so that's what they did. They said the Uki DAO was in the same business that B0X was. It's all as one. So you're both operating this unregistered platform, charged the Uki DAO, which they, you know, it, and by the way, we're going to get to this in a minute. If you don't organize your DAO as a legal entity, then all it does is default to some unincorporated entity. And in the United States, it's different in other countries, but in the United States, that just defaults to a general partnership. The really bad thing about a general partnership is every single partner is jointly and severally liable for all the debts and liabilities of the partnership. So the CFTC just went right to these two individuals and said, you're my target. Now, they could rightfully hold up their hand and say, what about everybody else? <laughs> but, you know, that's not the CFTC's problem. That's their problem. And so that's what's happening there. And I, I would expect you're going to see more of that. I, you know, I, maybe it's from the IRS, maybe it's from the SEC, who, who knows. But I, obviously, this is one government regulator who took that tact and said, hey, the Dow and the, the DeFi protocol or platform in this instance are operating one thing. We're all in it together. We have people who are controlling it from this side. People who are economically benefiting on that side don't really care. You know, we're coming after all of you. So very interesting development there. I was, I was, I was, really, was fascinated really fascinated by that. It's great stuff. Yeah, definitely. I think that kind of brings us on to the entity structures for DAOs. I've been looking into some of our internal projects at the moment, and I feel there's a really hard area to navigate. And so from what I've kind of understood about the different LLC structures that you've primarily got, di different entity structures, as to say, is the primary benefits seem to be limiting liability and also the payment of taxes, which seems to be a lot of hoops for people to jump through. I was curious to know, are you seeing these things being adopted a lot? And do you see their actual benefits beyond the limited liability and the, and the payment of taxes associated with these entity structures? No, I mean, I think one of the, uh, the chief benefit is limiting the liability, right? And that's, that's the primary reason someone's going to do this. Because the truth is, uh, we could, even if we didn't organize as a, as a, as an LLC or a foundation or, you know, whatever statute we're using, whatever country, we could always file our taxes. But it, it really runs two ways it for the people who are members the participants in the DAO going to limit liability it also sets up some rules about you know if you need to sue somebody if you need to take action against people for whatever reason you know if you look in the statute in which it was formed under even if it's like a Cayman foundation there are rules there's real there's pages of statutes and it tells you here's what you do if that happens here's what you need to do you know and by the way sometimes it's nefarious somebody stole money or did something to somebody, somebody robbed the, 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 the treasury. Sometimes it's just life. Somebody owned governance tokens and they got divorced and, you know, it's part of the war that they died and it's got to be transferred to somebody, you know, so it's just everyday stuff that happens and you need rules to deal with this. And not everybody who's writing the smart contracts that work inside of a DAO are thinking about that, you know, but the people who write these statutes certainly are. So it's nice to have that kind of thing. But the flip side of that, I think, is, and this is where I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of because it goes right to my clients, institutional adoption. Huge institutions like certainty, they like rules. They like to know what's going to happen in every circumstance. If you tell them, oh, there's this amorphous thing, we call it a DAO, and it's not under any statute. And by the way, there's millions of people out there in the world who can just log on and change the, the, the terms tomorrow. And, you know, it, 
that's not something that that's going to get a pension fund invested into. And so I think I know that there's a huge community of digital asset players out there who feel that the whole idea of distributed ledger technology and blockchain is that there is no central intermediary and there should be no government oversight and intervention and da, da, da. I get it. However, if you want huge institutional money, you at least need, you don't have to have a central intermediary, but you do have to have some pretty clear guardrails about, you know, you can't do this. You, you can't rob me. You can't disappear with the money. You, you know, things like that, I think are incredibly important for institutional adoption. So that's one of the things that these statutes do. I don't care if you're using the Wyoming Dow statute or you're using a Swiss foundation, they all have these concepts in mind that, hey, you know, there are rules about what has to happen in certain instances. So I, I find it actually a good thing, but I know that there's people in the community that just abhor this type of stuff. One of the things I, I did get a bit concerned with, they're looking into the entity structures a bit more, where there seems to be a bit of a gray area around the distribution of profits to members. Are you, do you able to sort of elaborate on that and, and what it all means? Depending on what we see as the entity structure for the DAO is, is really going to dictate, you know, how do payments in and out and by the way, when I say payments, it, it might be money. It's probably not. It's probably a token. But how do those movements of value in and out get treated? And so it's interesting for people who say, well, no, it's, there shouldn't be any kind of entity at all. You know, it's just it's this amorphous thing. And so don't call it any kind of entity. Okay. Well, then when I gave you $100 for my governance token, if that's what happened, aren't you taxable on the $100? Normally, when I put money, anybody puts money into an entity in return for equity, whether it's voting or non-voting, whether it's economic or non-economic, we have rules that say, well, listen, that's somebody capitalizing an entity. No one should be taxed there, right? That's taxpayer friendly, right? But you just took yourself out of that regime and said, no, no, we're not an entity and I'm not taking money for capital. Well, if okay, if that's the rule, then, then you just got money not for capital, so you're taxable. On the entire thing up front, and of course, everybody would say, "Well, the Dow needs that money to pay all the expenses to you know, build whatever project they're building, so it's not income." So the, all that's leading back to is, I like the words that you use to describe these things, but the substance is that people are capitalizing the entity. So you're right; you shouldn't be taxable on that. That's just capital in for let's call it equity and a partnership if that's what it is. Now you raise a good point. If I send something out to people, what is that? And, you know, I think you, I don't know, there's no real two ways about it, right? I guess there, there might be two ways about it. it. It's income. So it could be a distribution or a dividend or something like that. But of course, you know, if somebody had put money in up front, you might say, well, that's just a return of a portion of their capital. But that's where it would really be nice if we had some rules around this either from the IRS or you could actually self-help yourself right inside the, whatever it is, like the contract originating documents, which again goes to why it's nice to use some of these statutes to organize your DAO, because you might put in the operating agreement, when I send you money, the first, whatever, $100 is going to be a return of capital and then it's going to be profit or we can say no, but, you know, the real right answer here is we're going to treat this thing as a partnership. And so if we make money, you know, you get taxed whether I send you money at all or, or not. We'll send you a K-1, so we'll let you know at the end of the year. 
what money you should report. But when I actually send you cash, it's just going to reduce your basis. It's not income, that kind of thing. So you can, you can self-help yourself here using these statutes too, which is good because otherwise we're left in this world where, you know, we don't know how to treat things. And by the way, if you don't know exactly how to treat it, the IRS's answer is going to be it's income all the time. That's going to be the answer, right? It's going to be the default answer. So if you don't want that, you should, again, you should cubbyhole yourself into the answer that you want it to be. And so you can really self-help yourself by saying, yeah, you know what? I organized this under a Wyoming LLC statute, the Dow statute that they have. It's got really clear rules I can use. It also defaults me into a, a, a partnership, not a general partnership, a limited partnership of sorts like an LLC. So I know how to tax it. And so like, by the way, so we were saying before, like in, in DAOs, a lot of the governance uh, tokens don't make money. And it's actually the protocol tokens that make money. If that's your, if that is the real situation, then if you took my route and I organized it this way under the Wyoming DAO statute, what you would have inside the DAO partnership, now we'll get to the protocol in a second, but inside the DAO partnership, all I had was expenses, right? It's all expenses. I don't have any income. So fine, I can send you a K-1 every year and you're going to have expenses. By the way, wouldn't you like to take those expenses as, as losses if you could, query whether you can, but, you know, but you'd rather have them available than not available. But you wouldn't have any income in that kind of prototypical sense because there's no income in the DAO. I think there's other DAOs out there that are actually organized for total non-business purposes, right? There's some that just do research. There's some that just do education, right? Those things could be organized as nonprofits. And I didn't, there are some that are, are doing that. There are some that are getting their nonprofit um, designation granted. So it's not like inside the IRS, people aren't thinking about this, aren't taking a very strategic approach. So that is happening. And that kind of goes to the point that, you know, not no two DAOs are the same. So some are there just for profit. Some are there just for research. So, you know, some are in the middle somewhere. But, you know, I think all of them need to find their home. And, and, and that goes both to how they're taxed, but also how they ought to be treated uh, as a security or as a commodity or otherwise. Yeah, I, I think that's really good to hear, to be honest. And couldn't agree more that DAOs come in so many different shapes and sizes that they need to be treated differently. It's like NFTs you were saying earlier, right? One of the things that I noticed within the, the sort of the rules that they put in place was that they needed to have the smart contracts to be amendable. And I know a lot of people have issues with this for decentralization, immutability of, of smart contracts and so on. Do you think that like any of these have been sort of taken from existing laws or do you think there's more thinking to it than that? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think obviously this it's an evolution, right? I mean, this was their first crack at it. I'm sure they'll do better later. But the amending smart contracts is interesting, not just from the, the local statute perspective, but just all around it in, in DeFi and DAOs. Right? Because the truth is, if I have a DAO that can vote on protocol changes, I could wildly change the protocol or I could take the smart contract out altogether, forget about it, and I'm going to replace it with this whole other thing. So I don't know how I, I, I understand why, you know, some people say, well, this whole thing needs to be immutable because that's why I'm, you know, people will use it because they know exactly what it's going to do all the time and it can't change. And well, that's just a misnomer, right? Because, you know, all of these protocols can drastically change, you know, if all the members vote for that, which by the way, you will find that, uh, not to use their name, but there's some very big DeFi protocols out there that have 
changed the way they did things this past year. And there are users who are not DAO members. They don't hold governance tokens. And so they didn't get a say in how those things changed, but their economics changed because they were heavily invested into them and heavy users of them. But you need to know what you're investing in and you need to know how they work, right? That may be a function of a statute. They may be a function of a white paper or a smart contract, but you need to understand that, you know, you know, as each uh, jurisdiction starts making laws and rules around this, maybe they need to be educated by the industry about how these things work and why they work. And so perhaps as they get that information back from the public and the users, they'll, they'll amend things down the road. I'll propose a, a little discussion here. When it comes to tax law, right, tax rules, tax guidance, can you talk a little bit about how that's formed and how that gets to the public? Yeah, so at, at the federal level, all right, we're going to have something introduced by one of the houses of Congress. And yeah. in truthfully, before it ever even gets to that level, you know, behind the scenes, each one of them has what's called a tax writer. Yeah. And there's a real person back there and they, you know, they scribble down in their notes, you know, here, you know, maybe we should pass a rule that this is taxable. That's not taxable. And they're, they're really concentrating more on a, on a lot of times on a, it. It's an anti-abuse measure or it's a policy perspective. You know, we want to incentivize this behavior, disincentivize that behavior. And so we'll call this income or give a deduction for that or credit or whatever the case may be. And also there's a revenue raising concept back there also, which is quite important at times. And so, yeah, so you will find that certain Congress people or senators are more involved in this space than others, right? You've, you've, you've seen some of them out there proposing legislation on this, that, or the other thing. Not that it's gotten passed, but it's been very helpful. I thought the Gillibrand Loomis bill, right, was a prime example, right? Their tax writers helped them come up with some rules that they thought were either helpful or reasonable or, you know, provided some benefit for activities that they wanted to encourage. So, you know, that's, that's how those things come to the fore. And then, you know, you don't see the tax writer, but you see, you know, Gillibrand and Loomis, that's who you see out on the floor. And that bill that they put out there then needs to go to committee. And unfortunately, like in that one's case, never comes out. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, it's okay because, you know, there's no reason to, for people to act on that because there's no, once it did, it would still need some sort of legislation going through Congress to attach to, unless it's going to move on its own, which is highly unlikely. And there's nothing moving through the legislature now because we're in, we're in election year. So, you know, it's, it's fine that it sits where it does. If there, if there's a legislative vehicle that moves later in the year, who knows, maybe it'll, It'll catch some traction and get on there. So, but really, really interesting things that are that are in there. You know, not the least of which you might have noticed was a little plug for the Jarretts of the world. If any people don't know the Jarretts, where this this couple in Tennessee and they were they were baking or mining Tezos, and yeah, and their whole case was around, hey, you didn't tell me what the timing is of the taxation. They were happy to pay the tax, but their their cause to of action was. I don't think we should be taxed on our staking rewards until we sell them, not when we actually get them because it's created property. And obviously, there's a lot of people that disagree with that. But inside that Loomis-Gillibrand bill was that rule. It said, yeah, 
please, you know, people shouldn't be taxed until they sell the staking rewards. So it's interesting that, you know, these little issues might make it up into the federal legislation like that. So that's how stuff comes into law at the federal level around digital assets. And it's not that different at the state and local level either. It's just on a much smaller scale. A few things that I thought were really interesting there. We do a lot of work around mechanism design. So this is incentive mechanisms, right? Behavioral economics. It sounds like a lot of the time governments, whether state or federal or even regulatory bodies, leverage tax as an incentive. Does that sound about right? Absolutely. Sometimes it's an incentive. Sometimes it's a disincentive. And so, for example, you know, obviously the government today – It's not always been the case, but today is greatly trying to incentivize the use of renewable energy and and clamp down on carbon footprints. And so, as you might know, Bitcoin mining is a big, big issue there because, you know, it can, if left unchecked, can be a huge energy draw and have a huge carbon footprint. So not that they directly aimed at Bitcoin mining in the latest infrastructure bill, but they did provide a whole host of new credits not the least of which was for renewable energy. And they also did something very special that I don't think a lot of people focused on, which was normally when you get a tax credit, so they're trying to incentivize a behavior. Here, I'll give you a tax credit if you do this. If you go build a solar farm next to your mining pods in Texas, I will give you a tax credit for that. Before the infrastructure bill, a tax credit was only good to you if you had taxable income to use it against. If I was running losses, it's useless, right? I'll get it later, maybe if I ever make money. What they did in the infrastructure bill was they made the credits refundable, meaning I can actually bring them back to the government and just get cash. They also made them transferable. So they're, you know, I might not be making money, but Cameron is, you know, I'll sell it to Cameron for a few bucks and I'll make some money. So, you know, that will really incentivize people, not just in the Bitcoin mining area, but anything that they're doing that uses huge amounts of energy. And maybe produces a certain amount of uh, pollution or carbon. You know, here, do this instead, and at least I'll get some money from the government to do it. So that's a way to incentivize people. And then, of course, there's other things that they hate. They don't want people to do. And so they say, you know what, I'm going to tax that at a higher rate than anything else. Or I'm not going to allow any deductions for money you spend to do this. You know, and I hate to bring it up here, but one, one of the things that kills me is like the cannabis industry, right? And they, they just say, so if you are doing things in cannabis, even though it might be legal in your state, from a federal perspective, you can't take deductions for doing that because there's a code section that says you're not allowed deductions to do illegal stuff. And it's still illegal from a federal perspective. So you don't get a deduction. It's crazy. But that, yeah, so you're, you're absolutely right. You, you can use tax to incentivize or disincentivize certain behavior. Such a fascinating point in that one around, uh, is, is there any other big ones that you know to mind? Yeah, but you know, there's other things that people do. Like if, if you're doing certain pollution activities, right, you, you, you don't, okay. you don't get deductions, you get, you get taxed at higher levels. You know, there's, there's all kinds of things like that. I haven't seen that so much in the, in the crypto space, you know, just because we haven't had much legislation at all. But one thing was talk about disincentivizing certain behavior in the, in the infrastructure act, the last year, the previous year, the 21 one, that in that one, what they did was they, they, this is rules, it's called 6050I, which is a rule most people, even tax lawyers, never heard of. But you all know what it is because 
you, this is the reason, like, you know, not to go to a business and try to pay them in cash in a brown paper bag, right? If it's a large amount of money. And one of the reasons you don't do that is well, a lot of reasons, but one of the big ones is if you pay somebody more than $10,000 in cash, they actually have to report you to the government, right? And it's called a form 8300 reporting. Nobody wants that. Good things don't come when that happens. So nobody pays people more than $10,000 in cash. It just doesn't happen anymore. Um, however, people do do that in crypto and NFTs, not on purpose. They're not trying to do nefarious acts normally, but you know, I might transfer some crypto to you or an exchange, or I might give NFTs to a marketplace that are worth more than $10,000. That could totally happen, right? What they did was they say, treat digital assets as cash for that purpose. So now every, this goes live, by the way, January 1st, 2023, Every time you transfer crypto or NFTs to a marketplace or somebody else who's in a trader business and it's worth more than 10,000 USD on that day, they are going to report you to the government. And yeah, people start wondering, why are we doing this? Is someone money laundering? Is this anti-terrorism financing? We, we don't know. We'll have to look into this. So Tony, it does look like we are getting to the end of our time here. Let's start to close it off with some tax considerations for DAOs. My, my biggest issue for people is, you know, whether you believe in legal entity structures or not for DAOs, don't kid yourself. In most countries, United States included, even if you don't choose an entity structure, you have an entity. Every, every governmental body in this country is going to treat your DAO as an entity, whether you did one or not. So it behooves you to go ahead and choose the one that's best for you rather than leave it up to chance. Because by the way, as we said earlier, the one that you're going to get by chance is a general partnership and you're not going to like it for liability purposes, if nothing else. But the other thing that's interesting for DAOs, whether you choose an entity structure or not, assuming you, you default into partnership, whether because you chose one or that's where you know you didn't choose any and you defaulted. Here's an interesting question. If the DAO issues tokens, governance tokens or otherwise, and then those tokens go on to an exchange, do I have a publicly traded partnership? I think the answer is yes, because, you know, especially if it makes it on its way to like a Coinbase, we can all argue whether if I made it onto some esoteric exchange in the Bahamas that only trades once every, you know, two years, maybe that doesn't qualify. But clearly, if I've made it on the Coinbase, I have a publicly traded partnership. And the issue in this country when you do that is you will transform your entity into a taxable corporation unless you meet very certain types of income asset rules, which you probably are not going to meet. And so it's just fascinating to me that there you, we have these entities for where people said, I'm, I, I'm not choosing an entity. I'm not going to abide by any of these you know, state law rules. And all of a sudden, they are a corporation for tax. <laughs> it, and, and the horrible thing about that, right? Not horrible, but interesting is that they really need to do tax reporting at that moment. And so the fact that they're not just leaves this door wide open. And like I said, if you're one of these general partnerships, you know, you still have the unlimited liability. The corporation status is a tax fiction. So now the entity owes tax as a corporation. State law, you're still a general partnership. The partners, the token holders are still fully liable. You just put yourself personally liable for boatloads of tax, assuming the entity is making money, of course, which maybe it's not. But if nothing else, you're getting late filing penalties every year. So that's why I think it becomes critically important 
you know, let's not leave things to chance. Let's go ahead and form our entity as whatever we want it to be. Let's abide by those rules. Let's go ahead and do the tax reporting for the entity. Maybe we're generating expenses that people can use. Let's put it out there and let's make that part of our operating procedure. And so I think that's where, where DAOs end up. And I, I, I even hear from tax professionals, believe it or not, that, oh, you know, don't worry about that entity. They formed that as a, as a Cayman Foundation, so it's not subject to tax. I'm like, that's not true. That's not true at all, <laughs> you know, because, you know, if it defaults, you know, from a U.S. perspective, if it's still treated as a partnership, you know, those, those going to fall out, the, the tax is going to flow through. And by the way, if it went to be a corporation, it's still a not, you know, a nothing. Now I put money into a foreign corporation in the U.S. We have rules about that. You got to file for that. And so, you know, and by the way, if you don't, here's a horrible thing, too. People keep doing this. They structure it as a Cayman Foundation or a Swiss Foundation, thinking they're being very crafty. But for U.S. people. If they don't file those foreign reporting rules, there's an automatic $10,000 penalty per form, and you can't get out of it. I mean, that's horrible. So people, please be mindful of how these things are formed and what your tax reporting obligations are, because you could be putting yourself in a pretty, pretty bad position. And so for the last question here today, how can people get in contact with you or see some of your work or speaking engagements online? Yeah. So for me, probably the best way is to look me up on LinkedIn, Anthony Tuts, T-U-T-H-S at KPMG. You'll find me, all my contact information is on there, including my cell phone number. Only call that one if you really need me. But you can find me, you can follow all the stuff that I put up there, everything I talk about. I do post it up on LinkedIn so you can find it there. You will also see links and most of the things I post to other colleagues at KPMG. We have, it's not just me. We have a huge team. There's probably over 200 people around at various areas at KPMG, and that's just the US. We also have them in all the various countries around the world who are concentrating on digital assets. And like I said earlier, we are covering the entire ecosystem. So you might be working in a DAO, you might be a developer, you might be at an exchange, or you might be at a hedge fund. If you're working with digital assets, you should be working with KPMG. Feel free to reach out. 